Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. The start of season two of the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. I am so excited to be a part of this journey. I'm Jordan Ballon. I'm one of the hosts of Detroit Bad Boys, along with my co-host, Ben Galker. Uh, if you want to stay in touch with both of us, the easiest way is probably through Twitter. I'm at JDBell20, and Ben is at BRGalker. Each week, we're going to be joined by a different member of the Detroit Bad Boys, a contributor to that site, DetroitBadBoys.com, an SB Nation site, and the host of this podcast. We're very lucky to be a part of it and very lucky to get started on this season, the 2016-17 season for the Detroit Pistons. We decided we wanted to kick it off with a preview, and not just any preview, but a preview of the entire Eastern Conference all culminating in our Pistons preview that will be coming right before the games tip off for the regular season. I'm hoping that you can continue to support this podcast. The best way to do so, besides listening, and I hope you do enjoy listening, is to let us know what you think. Contact us. Use the hashtag AskDBB. If you have questions or even just comments about the podcast, let us know there. And also, please subscribe on iTunes to this podcast. And if you can, take a second and rate the podcast. That helps us continue to generate momentum for this podcast going into the next year. And we got a lot of work to do. So with that being said, let's go to work. So to preview the Eastern Conference, what we're going to do is run down each division, starting with the Atlantic. Next week, we'll bring you the Southeast Division, then the Central Division, and of course, finally focusing just on the team. So to run through the Atlantic Division and to keep a bit of continuity with each of these previews, we decided to add a little more structure than we have ever had on this podcast, and I hope you all enjoy it. So to talk about each team, what we're going to start with is talking about the best and worst case scenarios for their upcoming seasons. From there, we're going to talk about the most important player and the most intriguing player. Then we're going to fire up the trade machine, talk about how each team can improve, what moves they may need to make to improve in the future. Uh, Then we each rank the coach, also put in our top storyline for the team. And then we're going to tell you if they're going to make the playoffs and how many wins they're going to have. And the great thing is, this is recorded, so you can all come back to it. I know I will come back to it at the end of the season and get an idea of who actually knew going into the season. I think it'll be fun to follow throughout the entire year. So to help us talk about the Atlantic Division, this is someone we've tried to get on the podcast for a while, and I'm glad we could finally get him on as a guest, is DBB contributor Lazarus Jackson. How are you, Laz? I'm doing great, Jordan. How are you guys doing? Doing good. Excited about talking about some basketball, talking about these Atlantic Division teams. Laz, what's your uh, Twitter handle, and let the people know how they can get a hold of you. So uh, my Twitter handle is at... Last chance. That's at L A Z C H A N C E. My DMs are open. You guys can talk to me whenever. And slide um, right in. And, Love it. Yes, slide right in. Also joining me, as always, so glad we're getting ready for season two together, Ben, is Ben Gulker. Hey, it's great to be back, guys. This is my favorite time of year. The weather's cooling off. Michigan football is rolling. And hey, the NBA is only a couple weeks away, so it's my favorite time of year. I'm glad to be back uh, breaking down some basketball with you guys. That's right. The preseason will be going on as we do this preview, so that'll be kind of fun to talk about some of the storylines in the NBA, Uh, and one of those is going to start with the very first team we talk about, one of the big storylines of the last week. So uh, without further ado, number five in the Atlantic Division, the first team of the Detroit Bad Boys 2016-17 preview is the Philadelphia 76ers. The process is dead, but the team lives on. The 76ers, 
Ben, I'm going to start with you. Going into this season, what is the best case and what is the worst case season look like for this 76ers team? All right, so short and sweet on the 76ers from my perspective. Best case scenario, they win more games than last year. I, I think they still suck. But hopefully we're not talking about a historically terrible basketball team. Hopefully some of their young players um, have learned a little bit. They've got some experience under their belts at this point. There seems to be at least a little bit more cohesion in terms of the overall strategy for this franchise. Uh, So maybe they win more games than they do last year. I I think that would be a step in the right direction. Um, Worst case scenario, though, especially, you know, a little bit of injury, a little bit of injury updates going on this year or this week, excuse me, less than 20 wins is not out of the question yet until they prove that they're a capable NBA roster. Um, you know, I'm going to be a skeptic. So I think there's a real chance that they still are really bad and they still have the best chance at landing yet another number one draft pick in next year's draft class. Yeah. And that of course is the breaking news to come out of the last week uh, the start of training camps and the start of preseason in the NBA. Ben Simmons, the number one pick in the draft. I, I don't know if this team is cursed, but Ben Simmons, a foot injury, an injury to his fifth metatarsal bone that's looking to keep him out possibly two to three months. It's too reminiscent of the injury Joel Embiid had. And I, I do wish this franchise some luck going forward because they definitely have had some bad luck the last few years. When you're looking at this team going into the next season, does the injury to Simmons affect how you think the team performs this year at all? Well, I mean, for their sake, I, I hope so. And what I mean by that is I I expect Ben Simmons to be a fantastic NBA player. Whether he would be in the first two to three months of his NBA career, that's, of course, a crapshoot. You, you rarely know if a rookie is going to be productive that soon into his career. But, you know, frankly, their depth at small forward is, is nothing exciting anyway. Um, and, you know, you have to think, just looking at the depth chart, that, Right out of the gate, he would have been a focal point of of their offense. Maybe not the go-to guy, but a focal point for sure. So, you know, I, I have to think that um, if nothing else, it throws a really significant wrench in the in their plans going into the preseason, going into the start of the season. You lose a guy who's your one, you know, number one or number two option, even if he is a rookie, that sets you back. So, yeah, unfortunately for them, I, I agree with you. I'm pulling for the 76ers. I think. You know, the NBA is a better product when when all of its teams have a chance to be competitive on a nightly basis. And that just hasn't been the case uh, for the past couple of years. So I'm pulling for them. And and I'm really intrigued to see um, what they can do maybe six months from now when they're all healthy, uh, when things, uh, you know, are going according to plan in terms of your game plans and your schemes and all that kind of stuff. You know, I don't think it would be a great team, but I think they could be exciting. And on any given night, those, those young players um, are capable of doing some interesting stuff. So, yeah, I, I think it's got to hurt. And, and like you, I'm pulling for him. I, I hope he gets healthy soon and that they are able to put it together toward the end of the season. Part of the issue they have going in is exactly what you're talking about. How do they kind of work out this all of these young pieces and how do they kind of fit together? Laz, I know you kind of talked about that looking at the front court with both your best and worst case scenario. So just talk a bit about that. What things are you excited about seeing with the 76ers and what would a worst case season look like for them? At the beginning of the year, I was excited to see kind of the interplay between Simmons and Sark and Embiid, uh, three guys that we've never seen on a basketball court before, how that dynamic would play out, and also the dynamic between uh, Nerlens Noel and Jalil Okafor, two guys we have seen share the court at the same time, two disastrous results. <laughs> and and, and uh, in my best case scenario for Philadelphia, one of those guys gets traded, uh, Nerlens or Jalil. 
I mean, ideally, you figure out whether or not uh, Joel Embiid can stay healthy for a period of uh, longer than eight months. But uh, once you figure that out, like, you can you can let one of Nerlens or uh, or Jaleel go. Um, I don't know if you guys saw Nerlens' uh, his his quotes during the media day, but he uh, he did not sound happy with his contract situation and uh, uh, with the Sixers. And uh, Jerry Colangelo didn't sound like he cared. So, like, I, when I look at something that's the best case for the Sixers franchise going forward, I think one of those guys being moved is definitely is definitely up there. Yeah, and we'll definitely talk a bit more about that because I was thinking the same thing with this team is I, you just can't work it out having two centers on the floor at the same time. And with the comments that have come out from Nerlens Noel, you're right. I kind of feel like that would be the guy to trade. I feel like he has the most trade value right now. Uh, Okafor, there's just so much made out of his, his defense and uh, with the way t- today's NBA is going, it would take a pretty specific roster for him to find a spot. So I'm interested to see as well how they work that out. Moving on to just players specifically, the most important and most intriguing player. Laz, you actually had the same player. Yeah, for me, the the, the guy is Joel Embiid. You, if you're uh, Jerry Colangelo, you have to figure out what you have in this guy three years later. Uh, it, no matter how he performs throughout the year, it just answers a lot of questions about the future of your franchise. If you can see what he can do in sixty to seventy games, he doesn't have he doesn't have to play the whole year. Um, if you know frequent rest or uh, a recurring injury pops up, like that's fine, so that it doesn't keep him out of the lineup too long. But uh, in order to see where your franchise is going, you need to know how healthy Joel Embiid is going to be and how he looks when he's on the basketball court. Yeah, definitely. For for most intriguing Ben, and it was my most important player for the team. It was Ben Simmons, the number one pick, and I'm sad that we're not going to find out how he plays and how he looks in an NBA uniform to start the season. So Ben, I wanted to talk to you about your most important player, which was Nerlens Noel. Do you think Noel is good enough that he should be one of the cornerstone players that they build around going forward? Well, I think if they didn't have Embiid on the roster, I think, yes, you build around him. But I, I think Laz brings up a really good point. To me, he's the most important player because, well, really for two reasons. One, I think he has the opportunity to prove whether or not he is a franchise cornerstone sort of player. But two, if for whatever reason the 76ers decide that they want to move him in favor of Embiid or, or maybe for other reasons, I think he's probably their most attractive trade asset. Maybe not during the season, but maybe in some sort of a, a contract negotiation period next summer. Obviously, there's lots of volatility and that could all backfire. But to me, he's probably their best player in terms of you know consistency from game to game. And I know that's not saying a whole lot for a 10-win team, um, but... You know, for as much as they have a most important player on the court right now, I think it's probably Noel. Uh, And then secondarily, I think he's probably their biggest asset in terms of the trade market. Yeah, so let's talk about that trade market. Laz, you said uh, that it's Noel or Okafor. Talk a little bit more about that and what kind of moves do you think this team could make? And then what do they need? What improves this team, at least for the short term? So I think Ben had it right when he said that Noel is the more uh, valuable or more attractive trade asset. But uh, as we've seen kind of with other guys in the league, with uh, with like a Brooke Lopez or like a Greg Monroe, or uh, we've seen that it's harder kind of to trade the, the low post score big man who doesn't really defend on the other side of the court or rebound. Mm-hmm. So you don't really know what kind of return you could get for Okafor. Um, if you package, I think, uh, Noel or Okafor, plus uh, a young guy like Jeremy Grant, who uh, played pretty well 
for the the select team from what I saw during the summer. You you'd st- you're still looking for a solid young point guard on the roster. Uh, right now, I think they're they start Jared Bayless at point guard when, at the beginning of the year. That's not a long term solution. Um, they signed Sergio Rodriguez in the offseason. That's not a long term solution. I think you could get you could maybe get a guy like a Ricky Rubio or a Marcus Smart or like a Jordan Clarkson. I feel like those would be that's an that's an equitable trade for both sides for uh, for return of uh, Noel and Jeremy Grant. Uh, those point guards that you named, those are all kind of ball dominant guys, not the best of shooters, at least in you know Rubio's case. Uh, is that the type of point guard that they should have? Is someone that can kind of distribute and get some open looks for other other players? Is that is that the best for that team? I think so. I think so for this type of roster as currently constructed. Um, I think you can find cheap shooting elsewhere. And I think what's more important to this roster, as we saw last year, kind of with Ish, um, who we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about later when we get to the uh, when we get to the Pistons. But uh, Ish wasn't really – he's still not a great shooter traditionally. But because he's such a good distributor and gets guys involved in the offense, like when you have a bunch of young guys, that's what you need, not necessarily – a whole bunch of shooting. You need uh, everybody kind of knowing where they're supposed to be and what their role is when they're on the court. And having a point guard who facilitates that is uh, is, in, is integral to like the development long term. Yeah, I actually agree with you. I, I thought about it uh, in terms of just having Ben Simmons and what's going to make him most comfortable. But you're probably right. Just to have someone who's steady that can run an offense that's done it before, that's probably better for the team going forward. Uh, ben, I'm interested. For Trade Machine, you just wrote Pandora's Box. I, I, I want to know what you're thinking about this team and, and the personnel moves that they can make. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I think one of the really cool things about their roster is that they don't have a single contract over $10 million per year, which I, I, I didn't look at every profile in the NBA, but that strikes me as something that's very uncommon in today's day and age. So on the one hand, that suggests a lot of flexibility, right? They're not overcommitted to any single player. They've got plenty of room to re-sign all these young players that are going to be approaching their end of rookie contracts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The downside to that, however, is that in order to acquire a player via trade that has you know significant talent level, you're going to have to ship out two, three, maybe four of those contracts in order to bring a player back who's making $15, $20 million a year, which is pretty much the going rate for a starting player at just about any position in the NBA these days. Um, so I think it's really hard to predict because all of these young guys, like Noel, for example, I think he's a pretty productive player. I think he's got a high ceiling yet, but he's only making, you know, $4.4 million a year. So if you ship him out, that's all you're going to be able to get back, you know, just because of the way the CBA functions. So I think it's really hard to, for me at least, to put together, you know, a top three trade scenarios for the 76ers because their cap situation is just completely unique and I don't think we've seen anyone with that sort of a cap profile over the last several years really do much in the trade market. So I really don't know what to expect. So Pandora's box was just my way of expressing that. Yeah, and it'll be fun to see the Colangelos ruin all of that cap flexibility by bringing in players to win 43 games every year. Yeah, well, the good thing is for Nick Stauskas, he can probably expect a max contract when uh, that's exactly the kind of thing you would expect them to do. It is. Well, you're a Michigan guy. You should love that. Oh, exactly. I'm all for it. Sign him up. Anyway, let's move on. Ranking the coach. Now, I looked at rankings, and I just kind of threw out, you know, generally, are they good? Are they great? Are they average? Brett Brown, I I think he's an above-average coach. He has an above-average pedigree. 
but I know it's a little tough to tell because Philadelphia has been a, a strange place for basketball the last few years. Uh, are you ready to kind of make up your mind about Brett Brown, Ben? Do you, do you have an idea of how good he is or do you want to see more? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> I agree with you on the pedigree thing, but I don't know how you would evaluate a coach who's had to deal with the situation he's had to deal with in Philadelphia. So to me, that's an incomplete, I, I, I throw my hands up in the air and say, I, I just really have no way of knowing at this point. Laz, do you have any hot Brett Brown takes? No, I'm, I'm right where Ben is. I, uh, if you grade on the curve of uh, bad, decent, good, great, elite, I think Brett Brown is a decent coach, um, which makes him like you know less than average. Uh, you look at the development of individual guys like a Nerlens Noel, um, like a Robert Covington, um, like to a lesser extent a TJ McConnell type, and you say like, oh, okay, those guys like have turned into like a legitimate role player or like a legitimate NBA player, or in the case of Nerlens, it's like the guy, the kind of guy who can like anchor a defense. But um, when you have to deal with the churn he's had to deal with with guys in and out on the roster, when you've had to deal with the, uh, the incessant youth that he's had to deal with um, getting guys like into sets and, and installing an offense with a bunch of guys who like have never done anything like that before. I think it's difficult to kind of, to tell what kind of coach or how good a coach he is. Um, so, yeah. I mean, maybe in his next stop, we'll be able to see how good a coach he really is. I think that's fair. Uh, go ahead and give me Laz your, your top storyline for the 76ers and then how many wins for them this season. So for me, the top storyline is: Does one of the big guys get traded? Does Okafor get traded? Does Nerlens Noel get traded? Um, until that happens, I think the the specter of um, what do we do with all these enormous humans on our front court kind of looms over the rest of the team. Um, and I have them winning 15 games, which doesn't sound like a lot, but they only won 10 games last year. So I'm kind of I'm higher on them than I was last year. <laughs> That's like a 50% improvement if uh, my back of the napkin math is correct. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, biggest storyline and number of wins is related. I'm going to say that breaking 20 wins will be a big deal for Philadelphia this season. And I'm going to sneak in a little pug for Jared Bayless, who was one of my favorite free agents as part of the reason why. And I'm going to go generous and say 21 wins on the season for the Philadelphia 76ers. Yeah, I like the shout-out for Jared Bayless because, Ben, that was a player both of us were high on for the Pistons this offseason. And I know we get some flack sometimes from DB Beers because we agree too much. And for that, all I say is I'm sorry that we have the best ideas, but we have them together. I'm not going to apologize for that. As for the 76ers, they had a guy who had some similar some similar thoughts that he had the best ideas, and that was Sam Hinkie. For me, the top storyline is now it's life after the process. You're dealing with the Colangelos. You're building this team a little bit differently. What does that look like? I have a feeling it includes moving some of those pieces that were brought in under Sam Hinkie. Uh, So, Laz, I agree with you. I feel that trades are going to be a big part of the storylines for the 76ers. If they're going to be on ESPN, it's probably because they are making moves. I can't imagine it's because of what they're doing on the floor. But I'm actually a little bit higher on them. I can't adjust it now. It's written in stone. I'm about to say it. It's going to be recorded. I have them winning 31 games. That DVD. Let's go. My hot take was going to be that Ben Simmons would be the primary ball handler. They would trade Nerlens Noel and find a way to make it work with Dario Saric, Ben Simmons, and Jalil Okafor. Now, they were in a lot of close games last year, and they just lost basically all of them. 
I'm realizing now that would be a 21-game improvement for the 76ers, and that seems insane. So while I stand by it, and it's now being recorded, I probably immediately regret <laughs> thinking that they'll win 31 games. Is it, is it fair to say that your hot take is going to go down in flames? I think it's probably fair to say that. I'm one team into this 15-team preview, and I already disagree with myself. So <laughs> let's let's move on. Number four, the Brooklyn Nets. This is a team in a very interesting situation. Laz, I'm going to start with you. What is the best case and worst case look for for this very sad franchise in Brooklyn? Okay, so the best the best case scenario is actually kind of interesting because the best case scenario is that they look like an actual NBA team and <laughs> they win it. They win enough games to not get completely screwed in the pick swap with Boston. The worst case scenario is that they look like a legitimate NBA team and they get screwed in the pick swap with Boston and give up the number one pick. Uh, yeah, if they looked like a legitimate NBA franchise, I think that would be a good thing. Ben, what is your best and worst case scenario? I'm laughing looking at it right now. <laughs> best case scenario, they are better than the Philadelphia 76ers. Maybe not by much, but better than the 76ers. Worst case scenario, by contrast, the flip side of that coin, is that the 76ers outperform the Brooklyn Nets, and the Nets are the worst team in the NBA, according to win-loss. So, pretty short and sweet. Um, it's a race to the bottom between these two franchises. In my it sure is. And the sad thing is for the Nets is they don't even get the pleasure of why teams tank. <laughs> so, they really have nothing to lose by losing. So, I'm kind of interested how that affects this team this season. If, you know, sometimes it seemed last year the 76ers were in on the idea of tanking with some of the rotations and the way they would play late-game situations. I don't think you'll see that with the Nets. I think they're interested in winning games, like, because of what Laz said, with the idea that they have the Celtics pick, the Celtics have theirs, so you might as well try to win as many games as possible. That's going to be very difficult, but if they are going to be successful this season, it's probably because of my most important player, Brooke Lopez. Laz, talk a little bit about Brooke Lopez and the effect he can have on this team for the 16-17 season. Yeah, Brooke Lopez is a is a uh, is the kind of big man that you can revolve an entire offense around. Um, he's a good scorer in the pick and roll. He's a good scorer in post up. Um, he rebounds pretty well, not as well as he used to after all the lower uh, lower body injuries. But um, he's he's definitely the kind of big man that can win you uh, twenty five games with like at the center. Um, and that's I think that's where Brooklyn wants to be. Like you look at their off season and they added like guys like Trevor Booker. They added guys like uh, Randy Foy. Um, they gave uh, Sean Kilpatrick a bunch of minutes last year to see if he was good, and he was. They added Luis Scola. Like they, they tried to acquire legitimate NBA players because, like we talked about, they don't they don't get the benefit of tanking. So there's no there's no point in not being good. So they they acquired guys that they thought would make them you know not bad. Yeah, and one of the players that they've acquired uh, who doesn't look too bad is your most intriguing player, so go ahead and talk a bit about him. The guy that I'm most intrigued by this season is uh, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. Um, small sample size last year, but he was uh, he was a really effective wing defender and the kind of guy that um, every team is looking for, the 3 and D guy who can, uh, who can attack the rim a little bit and defend kind of two through four on the other side of the court. Um, the bad thing about him, though, is that he's not a very good shooter, um, I think they they worked on fixing his shooting motion in the off season, so he stopped shooting on the way down. I don't know uh, how effective that will be in uh, in real time NBA games. I know some guys refer, revert back to form uh, when the uh, when the lights turn back on, but I think that 
his progression as a three and D wing, as the guy who can, uh, who can defend two through four is a big key for this team. Um, they don't have a lot of other uh, assets that can really do that. Uh, and so having that kind of guy is a, is a good, it's a good, uh, core for them to hold on to for the future. Uh, another most intriguing wing that you had, Ben, was Karis LeVert, the Michigan man that you are picking Karis LeVert. I like that. Uh, talk a little bit about Karis LeVert's game and your expectations for him this season. Yeah, so Karis LeVert was my most interesting player because I recognize his name on a roster full of players I don't care at all about, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Uh, I, nothing like starting off a podcast with two of the worst teams in the NBA. Um, but to me, Karis LeVert, you know, I think – Honestly, if he's able to carve out a role as a bench player who is a quality defender, I won't go quite so far as to say lockdown defender because I'm not sure if it's going to translate well to the NBA, even though he was in college. I think that would be a success for him. I think if he can be a 3 and D sort of player who's also effective uh, in transition, um, you know, he might be able to carve out a role as a seventh man or an eighth man in the NBA, and I think that would be – uh, success. I think that would be success for him. Um, so yeah, he's most interesting to me because I would be personally interested in watching him develop uh, as someone who rooted pretty hard for him during his college career. Yeah, definitely. I'm rooting for him. I hope he can find a role in the rotation. Another player like that that I'm just kind of rooting for because he hasn't played much basketball in the last two, three seasons really, is my most intriguing Chris McCullough. This is someone that I think would be a perfect four next to possibly Brooke Lopez or maybe even more of a defensive-minded center. Uh, I'd like to see what they can get out of Chris McCullough this year. He can shoot a little bit. He's a pretty good rebounder. Uh, He has to work a bit on the defensive end to get a little better, but just hasn't played much basketball due to injuries. Uh, A guy out of Syracuse that I like and I think could be someone that can work his way into the rotation early. Who he's playing next to is going to affect his future so much. I think whoever they have the five complimenting him uh, is important going forward. I think each of us kind of touched about this in the trade machine, trading Brooke Lopez. I have a feeling that there's some value in trading Brooke Lopez possibly to a playoff team. I could see him heading west. Uh, The teams that I just kind of spitballing that possibly could make a move for Brooke Lopez to add a, a center like that would be maybe Dallas, Houston, New Orleans, Oklahoma City. I feel like all those teams, possibly, there could be a deal in place to get a Brooke Lopez and to improve a bit of the uh, scoring on the inside. Not sure if you improve the defense at all, at least in the post, by bringing in Brooke Lopez. Again, we've seen, like, trying to trade for Greg Monroe or you're trying to trade Jaleel Okafor, those scoring big men um, that don't really defend all that well, well their, their asset value is kind of low right now. So I don't know what you could get for them from from, say, like a, a New Orleans or from, say, like an Oklahoma City. Um, I'd imagine, like, if you traded uh, to OKC, you'd want, like, a, a package of Cantor and something else. And if that's the case, if I'm Oklahoma City, I would just hold on to the younger, uh, a roughly equally talented asset that I have. That's why when I looked at the trade machine, I don't really see any trades for this team. Once you once you kind of go beyond what, what Lopez's value is and you look at all the other assets on the team, this is a team that's just going to have to improve internally for the next couple of seasons. And if they don't do that, they'll just be in dire straits. To kind of help that process, would you just play the younger players on this roster as much as you can? Uh, or would you continue to do what they're doing, which is signing the guys like Trevor Booker and um, Jeremy Lin to kind of cobble together a, a roster that may be semi-competent? Do you do that or do you just play the young guys? 
I would try to do what they're doing with the Trevor Booker move, where you find a guy who maybe uh, didn't have the opportunity that he was going to have in a previous situation, acquire him and give him a bigger opportunity, a young guy to see if he can kind of expand and grow his game into something that can be better for us, for us than it would be someplace else. I like that move. Um, As far as like the opposite end of that though, where you're acquiring a guy like Anthony Bennett, where you're like, maybe Anthony Bennett has something left in the tank. (laughs) I don't think that's a very good move. It's like just acquiring youth for the sake of acquiring youth is not where you want to be. Yeah, exactly. At that point, you're just kind of grasping for straws. But I kind of have a feeling that's where this franchise might be for the next few years. The coach, Kenny Atkinson. Bringing in a new coach, Kenny Atkinson, who had been an assistant in the NBA for a long time. Been an assistant under Mike D'Antoni, as well as the last few seasons under Mike Budenholzer in Atlanta. This is someone who is said to be a player's coach, is a Big time in player development, help with Dennis Schroeder, help with the development defensively of Paul Millsap the last few seasons. Uh, I'm intrigued what he can do. Uh, What about you guys? Do you like the move of bringing in an assistant like that for a franchise that might be in the woods for the next few years? Yeah, I like it. Great pedigree. I think, you know, Atlanta was a little bit down last year, but in terms of the specific players you mentioned, especially Schroeder, I mean, a guy who kind of, in my opinion, came out of nowhere and was deserving to become a starting point guard in Atlanta. So, you know, and as much as um, that's due to coaching, I, I like it. I mean, we don't obviously don't know anything other than he's been an assistant coach under really good head coaches. So, you know, I think that's a, a good move for them. And, and, you know, really it gives them time to evaluate him because they do have a few players on their roster who have the potential, as unlikely as it might be, they do have the potential to take some steps. Um, so, yeah, I like it. I think he's. I think he has the potential to be a solid coach. You could look at one definite tangible uh, benefit of having Kenny Atkinson as their coach, and that is uh, the acquisition of Jeremy Lin, who essentially said um, he knew Kenny Atkinson from his time in New York, from Lin Sanity, and said that if uh, Atkinson wasn't the coach, there was uh, like a snowball's chance that he was going to sign in Brooklyn. So you know that Atkinson already kind of has that reputation as a guy who makes guys better, and guys are willing to uh, guys are willing to to go to Brooklyn to try it out. Which you know that's a good thing. That's a good place to start for a coach who's never been a head coach before. Yeah, that that's definitely a positive. If players at least seem interested in playing for him, and hopefully he can get the most out of some of these younger players, and they can at least find a few that will be part of a core going forward. Uh, and that's kind of my top storyline: is how long is it going to take this franchise to compete and at least even become a team that could fight for the playoffs? If you guys have any hot takes or any top storylines, go to go ahead and hit me with that. But then give me how many wins for the team on 2016-17. Brett Lopez is fool's gold, in my opinion. I am not high on him. And I think, given his contract, close to $22 million a year, I think the Nets are in NBA purgatory until they figure out a way to get rid of that contract. I've got them at 20 wins. That's one win less than the Philadelphia 76ers, which is the only storyline I expect out of Brooklyn this year. All right. Uh, I think... The, the, the main thing for Brooklyn really is kind of not about Brooklyn. It's about how good the pick they're giving to Boston is going to be. Uh, because with, with all the moves that Boston's made, like that's, a, that's something that could reverberate throughout the NBA for years to come, is giving, giving Boston the number two pick or giving Boston the, the number one pick overall would be something that's like you know truly kind of tragic. Uh, that said, I have them winning 24 games, three more games than they won last year. Um, I think the... the the fact that they acquired actual NBA players means they should win more games. Yeah, I think that's fair. When Harry Giles laces it up for the Boston Celtics, 
Yeah, exactly. You, you put Harry Giles next to Jalen Brown, and it's just like, oh, okay, cool. Yeah, it's it's going to be very frustrating for the Brooklyn Nets. Uh, I'm I'm so sorry, Brooklyn, that you found yourself in this position, but I'm not because you wanted to win 50 games so bad that you traded for a few guys at the end of their career. Uh, and this is what you get. You get NBA purgatory. I hope you can find a way out. But for this season, I have them at 22 wins. Laz, how many? 24. 24. I do have the 76ers winning nine more games than the Nets. I'm, I'm going to say I'm still high in the Sixers. Let's move on. Yeah. Number Cheer for the 76ers just so that you don't have to eat your words. That's all I'm going to say. Like, yeah. I'm going to be pulling for them thinking of you, Jordan. Thank you. I, yes, exactly. That's that's a partner right there. They're going to have 24 wins in March, and I'm going to be watching – some I'm going to be watching some 76ers games when they're like down six to Charlotte in the fourth quarter with like an honest rooting interest. Let's move on to number three, a team that actually matters in the NBA. I'm glad we're past that. That was a lot of 76ers and Nets talk. Let's talk about the New York Knicks. This is a team all of us kind of have some differing opinions on, so I think this is going to be fun. The best and worst case, Ben, let's start with you. My opinion, best case scenario, if everyone's healthy, you know, no one goes down with a, a big injury because all of their key players really have injury histories. Uh, I think if they're healthy, they gel, they could maybe get into the bottom half of the playoffs in the Eastern Conference. Not home court advantage. Talking about the the bottom five to eight seeds, I think that's a real possibility for them. Worst case scenario, someone goes down with an injury. Mel, you know, take your pick. Any one of those key players goes down with an injury, or even worse, two or three of them do. We're talking uh, NBA lottery potential. I mean, they, they're built around guys who have been historically very fragile. Uh, and, and injuries, to me, are their worst-case scenario. And that could really blow the whole thing up uh, in terms of wins and losses on the court. Yeah, I, I agree. That's kind of what I, I said. Best case is it actually works. All of these players that they brought in find a way to gel. Uh, right now, looking at it on paper, I don't quite see it. Exactly what you're saying, Ben, that this could be a team that can sneak into the bottom half, but health is such a large part of it, uh, especially because we know the history of the players they have, and health is a concern. So best case is it works, and the worst case is it doesn't, and this is a team that is lackluster because the rotation continues to change as they deal with the injuries that they very well could be dealing with. Best and worst case, Laz, besides health, is there any other concerns that you have about this team? Health is definitely the major concern when it comes to this team. I think the other major concern is what they do at the guard position. Uh, when you when you look at the roster, uh, you've got you've got Justin Holiday and you've got Courtney Lee and you've got uh, Brandon Jennings kind of backing up uh, Derrick Rose mm-hmm. and you've got you're all, you're only you're only a couple you're only a, an injury or so away from having to play uh, Sasha Vujicic again and like that's not where you want to be if mm-hmm. you're trying to make the playoffs like the Knicks are. I'm just amazed he's still in the NBA. Good for him. Good for Sasha Vujicic to still be on a roster. He was out of the NBA for a season or two, wasn't he? I mean, I was yeah. like blown away when I saw his name pop up in a box where someone was like, what? I thought he was done. That's Phil's guy. Phil's yeah, guy right. It's the, guy. it's the Phil Jackson connection. The most important and most intriguing players. For most intriguing, Ben and Laz, you both agreed, Kristaps Porzingis. Laz, go ahead and start. What do you like about Kristaps Porzingis? You have him as the most important player, and Ben, you had him as most intriguing. So let's start with you, Laz. What do you like about Kristaps' game, and what are you interested in seeing this season, his second in the NBA? So the thing about Kristaps is you have him, he's he's the definition of a modern prototypical stretch five. You can play him 
you can play him at five. You can stretch the floor with all the guys at all five positions without sacrificing much defensively or much on uh, both sides of the glass rebounding wise. Um, what remains to be seen though, is I don't think they're actually going to utilize him as a stretch five at this point in his career. I think uh, he's going to play a lot next to Joachim Noah. And so you wonder what his, what his role is in the pecking order on offense. Will he get enough shots between, uh, between Mello and Rose and trying to get Noah involved at the elbows? It's like, will, will he, will he develop enough offensively, to fit the vision of what he could be. I think that's what makes him the most important player. I mean, like that and the fact that he's the, when uh, you list the other guys in the starting lineup, like he's the only guy that's like, you know, under the age of 25. He's the only guy that has a future <laughs> with the Knicks. And so his development is so important. You, you, you want him to get more shots. You'd want him to be involved in offensively, but you have guys who won't be a, a, as effective without those shots in the lineup next to him. So that, that dichotomy is kind of what, how he handles that dichotomy is why I think he'll be the most important player for the Knicks. Ben, you had wrote down that he could be the next Bargnani. Go into that a bit and then uh, talk about your most important player, the guy he's going to find himself next to in the front court, Joachim Noah. Yeah, absolutely. So to me, there's a blessing and a curse when it comes to, as last you talked about, sort of the prototypical stretch five. The, the good thing you get is floor spacing, but what you sacrifice is offensive rebounding and interior scoring. And no matter how you slice it, interior scoring is still the most important part of scoring in the NBA. There's just no question about it. If you can score frequently and effectively inside of eight feet, you're probably going to have a pretty good offense. Um, So with me, when I look at Porzingis, yeah, he was really exciting. And I think at 20 years old, the sky could be the limit for him, but I think there's some really clear red flags and I'm going to dive real quick into advanced stats and then jump right back out. Sub 52% true shooting percentage, which is absolutely abysmal for a big man, regardless of how you use him. So to me, that's what he has to prove. Is he just going to be the next Bargnani, which is a big man who just stands around on the outside and, and shoots threes because that's the trend. Or is he going to add things to his game that make him much more valuable. Uh, And, you know, I I don't know what that's going to be necessarily, but it has to include more efficiency because shooting 51.8 true shooting percentage from the field is just not good enough really at any position, but especially from one of your bigs. Uh, And and he's not a fantastic rebounder either. Um, Okay. On the defensive side of the ball uh, and kind of by nature of position, not very good offensively. So to me, you know, at 20 years old, the, the book isn't closed on him by any stretch of the imagination, um, but he's got to prove that he's more than just Bargnani. He has to he has to add things to his game that Bargnani never did in order for he to, you know, maybe Dirk is a good trajectory for him. Maybe that's a guy you can compare him to who added all sorts of interesting pieces to his game uh, as his game matured and developed beyond just standing in the corner and shooting threes. Uh, so that's what I'll be looking for in terms of the interesting part of the New York Knicks this season. Think about Dirk Nowitzki and Tyson Chandler. Um, The absolute best case scenario for a guy like Porzingis, in my opinion, is you play him at the four spot with a five man who's willing to do the dirty work on both ends of the floor. Mm -hmm. That's just my opinion. But I I think that the Mavs proved when they won the NBA championship that it's possible to win like that in today's NBA. So for me, uh, you look at the Bulls teams over the past handful of years – when Joaquin Noah was healthy and engaged, he was the best player on the floor for them, in my opinion, because he was so he controlled 
uh, defense and he controlled the glass. And those things still really, really matter, in my opinion, in the NBA. And uh, I think when he's healthy and when he's engaged, he can be that kind of a player. And he really complements the things about Porzingis that Porzingis isn't good at and maybe not, maybe never will be that good at. So to me, they're a really natural pairing uh, at the four and the five. With new coach Jeff Hornacek, I, I'm and just knowing the style of basketball that he had, the Phoenix Suns playing for the years that he was head coach, I was really interested to see if we would get uh, Carmelo Anthony at the four and Porzingis at the five. That would be probably a mess on the defensive end, but I'm interested how that offense would work with having them at the four and the five. I think Carmelo Anthony, at least for this year, probably remains their most important player. I think his role is going to be really fascinating with all these new pieces. He's been the rock of this franchise for a few years, for better or worse. And how he plays next to Porzingis and the role that he carves for himself at probably the three in Hornacek's system is going to be so interesting moving forward. As for the person who's running that offense, as of right now, it probably falls on point guard Derek Rose's shoulders. He's my most intriguing player. Laz, I know he's most intriguing for you as well, but part of the reason you're intrigued is, are we even going to really see this guy play a lot of basketball for the Knicks? Yeah, that's what that's what really concerned me is because of his looming uh, criminal rape case, where we we don't know if he's even going to be in the league um, in the future. And so, if he doesn't play, you're reliant on uh, Brandon Jennings in year two of his Achilles recovery, and a guy like Courtney Lee to run your offense. And that's not that's not where you want to be when you're trying to. Uh, make the playoffs or kind of develop Kristaps Spurzingis as a pick and pop threat. You want you want a guard who can actually uh, offer a threat, a driving a driving threat, an attacking threat on the pick and pop. If you're going to get Kristaps to where he wants to be, and uh, even in his even at his best, Brandon was never really a good finisher around the rim. And so uh, Derrick Rose definitely offers that, but the real question with him is is his his ability to play uh, this season. Yeah, his availability. I, yeah, exactly, his availability. And if that is, you know, if that comes into question between the injury history and, of course, the uh, court issues he's facing this season, it does open up another opportunity for Brandon Jennings as a starting point guard in this league. Do you like the Knicks as a as a franchise for Brandon Jennings? I know, Ben, this was a player we both kind of rooted for to find a good home. He's in New York now. Is this a good place for him? You know, I don't like it because he's behind Derrick Rose. That said, we don't know what Derrick Rose's status is going to be as we just unpacked. So, so here's my hot take with New York. I think Brandon Jennings is a better point guard for that roster than Derrick Rose is because there's only one basketball. And Brandon Jennings, in my opinion, is a less ball-dominant sort of point guard than Derrick Rose is. And he's a better shooter from deep within without the basketball. Um, so to me, you know, I don't love it for Brandon Jennings on paper two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Um, but maybe he's able to cash in on a situation that is, is absolutely terrible and unfortunate, but maybe it works out uh, in his best interest. And frankly, I would have made this argument regardless of Derrick Rose's personal situation. I think he might be a better point guard for that roster regardless. Last, you, what do you think about that? Do you agree that he's a better point guard for, uh, for this team? I, I think you want, you want a point guard who can attack the rim a little bit better. Then Brandon, um, especially from both sides of the court, we saw in Detroit, Brandon often had times, had difficulty times finishing around the rim because he always wants to finish with his left. Um, I think that Rose at his post-injury best 
would be better for this team simply because you could have him collapsing defenses in a way that I don't think Brandon can. But uh, the addition of, but when you take into account Brandon's effect as a shooter, I definitely see where Ben's coming from. Yeah. But I think Courtney Lee will kind of play that role for the, uh, for the Knicks in the starting lineup as that kind of the guy who uh, doesn't require a lot of offensive touches, keeps the ball moving, is uh, is a good enough shooter to make to keep defenses honest, and uh, and kind of facilitates the rest of the shots for people around him. Oof, good luck, Courtney Lee. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, if, as far as the trade machine goes, I think we can move past this pretty quick. Each of us, I think, didn't have much to add just because this roster seems to be in flux. They've added so many new pieces. Uh, I'd like to see them play a bit before I figure out who goes and who stays. Uh, I am interested if Carmelo is willing to waive his no-trade clause if things get kind of dire in New York. Uh, and if they do, it's probably resting on Jeff Hornacek's shoulders, at least for this season. Uh, what do you guys think of Jeff Hornacek? Is he a good fit for the Knicks? And do you see any sort of issues with Phil Jackson uh, and Jeff Hornacek? Uh, Laz, I'll start with you. No, I think I think Jeff Hornacek is a good coach. I think he he did a good job with a Phoenix Suns roster that did not always fit together. He did a good job of making it of getting results out of that roster. Um, I think that he and Phil are kind of on the same page. They've talked a little bit in, in media days about how they're going to integrate uh, aspects of the triangle into their offense, which I know is something that's on like a philosophical level really important to Phil. But I don't know if it if it works without MJ or Kobe or Shaq or Scotty or any of those guys. <laughs> so I think I think that uh, I think that Hornacek is a good coach, and that by doing what he's asked of by the front office, um, he will ingrain himself in that, and they won't have the issues they had last year with uh, with Fisher. Jeff Hornacek is a good coach. I think he accomplished some some really quality things in his previous ten years. Um, you know, if if we were just sitting around the bar having beers, I would love to unpack um, Phil Jackson, the coach, versus Phil Jackson, the GM, because I think you've got a fascinating contrast there. Uh, and kind of the same thing with Michael Jordan, too. Incredible player, maybe not the best uh, when it comes to the management side. But I think Jeff Hornacek is a good coach, and I think uh, if he has free reign, he has the capacities to uh, get the most out of this roster, which I don't think is greatness by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, but I think he's capable, better than average, you know, good coach. And that's kind of my top storyline. Is the triangle dead? What does this team look like? I, I just have so many questions about them generally. I have a feeling it could work, and I know we'll get into that as we talk about the playoffs now. Uh, so just to wrap it up here with the Knicks, Ben, I'll start with you. What is your kind of top storyline? And then do you think this team makes the playoffs? And how many wins? And then Laz will ask you the same thing. Yeah, so my top story is why are they losing so much? <laughs> I think this team is going to disappoint, and I don't think they're even going to get to 500. It would surprise me if they did, to be perfectly honest with you. So uh, I'm going to go on the record at 38 wins. And in the East, which is improved over the last couple seasons from top to bottom, that's not going to be good enough. So they're going to be on the outside looking in. For me, the, the top storyline is really what happens with Derrick Rose, whether or not he plays during the year. And uh, if he plays well, what do they do with him? He's an expiring contract at the uh, at the conclusion of this season. Um, do you offer him another $15, $20 million to be a guy who played okay for you or to be the guy that uh, that was an MVP and is no longer that guy? So that that's where I'm at with them. I don't, I don't think they make the playoffs. I don't think they come close to the playoffs. 
I only have them winning 34 games, which uh, is two more than they won last year. So again, I disagree. I have this team winning 41 games. I think they get the death rattle season, the like last good season out of some of these veterans. I think Noah and Rose together, that at least early in the season when they're both healthy and motivated and focused under Jeff Hornacek, I think they could make some noise. I think the second half of the season, I can see them fading a bit. I do think they're kind of locked into this roster, and I think that's good enough for this year. But Laz, you're right. That leaves them with some questions going into the offseason. Do you pay Derrick Rose? Is he your point guard of the future? Uh, you know, what is Chris Topps Porzingis? Who are you playing next to him in that front court? What is the future of Carmelo Anthony with this roster? It's a lot of questions, but I think this year it's enough to get them into the bottom, bottom half of the playoffs. I have them as the number eight seed, winning 41 games, exactly 500. Uh, that would be a hell of a season. And from what the two of you are saying, that would be, I think, maybe best case scenario for the Knicks. Yeah, that's definitely their best case scenario. All right, solid. So I've offered Philadelphia and New York basketball fans their best case seasons, and I hope both of those uh, franchises can come through for me. Moving on to number two, now we're going to talk about some good basketball teams. Uh, I'll have some Pistons-related questions to sprinkle in here as we now talk about playoff teams, but let's start with number two, the Boston Celtics. Best and worst case, I feel could go either way with this roster, just because there are so many players I like, but there are also just so many players on this roster. Uh, so, Ben, talk about your best case and talk about your worst case with the Celtics. Yes, I think best case scenario is going to be largely responsible. If they achieve this, it'll be a lot to do with coaching. Uh, I think their best case scenario is they actually contend for the Eastern Conference Championship. Uh, I don't think they quite get there. Uh, but I think there's a chance they could, you know, they could make it to the Eastern Conference Finals and ultimately give Cleveland a, a run for their money. Um, I think the worst case scenario, and I think this is actually somewhat likely, is that they end up sort of treading water because I think they brought in uh, some real talent in Al Horford, but I think they lost a couple players who were underappreciated and really had a lot to do with the uh, success, especially last year in Selinger. Uh, and Evan Turner, uh, guys who I think were a little bit slow to develop, and as a result of that, kind of got overlooked in terms of the national publicity around the NBA, but ultimately contributed to winning. So I think there's a real chance that they could be pretty good. I think there's a real chance that they could be basically what they were last year, which is still in a pretty good position, uh, because as you said, they have lots of quality players there. Uh, very cap-friendly in terms of their salary profile. Um, but ultimately, that might be disappointing for Boston fans, who I think are geared up uh, for something much bigger this season. Laz, what do you think your best and worst case for the Celtics? Uh, I think the best case is definitely that they challenge Cleveland for supremacy in the East. Um, their best case uh, from game to game is that they are a top seven. They're, they're top seven in offensive rating and top seven defensive rating, which just means they're, they're a they're a really good team on both sides of the ball. Sides of the ball. I think that's definitely possible with the roster that they've constructed. However, um, the roster is also where I think their worst case comes in. They don't have. They have a little bit of everything, but um, in, a, in a in a league full of specialization, uh, if you never find that right mix of nine or ten guys to do what you need them to do every night, I do wonder what. Uh, what it will look like for them in the playoffs when they come up against a team that uh, that has better specialization than they do. Yeah. Um, for a team that that uh, can protect the rim better than they can, a team that uh, that moves the ball better than they can. You know, I think 
that that's an important thing for later in the season, though. Regular during the regular season, they'll they'll be fine. Yeah, I think I agree with you there. During the regular season, I can see this team being fine as long as they can find that rotation early. Uh, and I know you kind of mentioned that talking about their worst case that if the bench takes a step back and they can't find those right nine to ten guys, uh, then it might be a struggle. But Brad Stevens has shown the last two years as an NBA coach, he's not afraid to roll out some rosters that look a little funky at times. He's played, you know, multiple point guards at the same time, uh, having, you know, two kind of shooting big men playing Sullinger and Olenek together. Uh, he's not afraid to do play with that roster, and I think he can get the most out of it by doing that. And he added a, a pretty good player in Al Horford. I think he's the most important player for this team for this year. Uh, if he plays in an all-star level, and can give them the front court player they didn't really have last year, that could be huge for this team, and it could be enough for them to challenge Cleveland in the East. Marcus Smart, that was my most intriguing player. Ben, I know it was yours. I think he's a player that's just so much fun to watch. I wish he got more minutes with this team, because I think he's a guy that needs big minutes to really be successful, uh, to be at least the most successful he can be. But in terms of most important, Ben, you had Isaiah Thomas, and I, I think it's not to say he's a forgotten player on this team, but with everything else going on, why do you think he is the most important player uh, on the Celtics? Man, that's such a great question. Let me start by saying that I'm a huge fan of his game, so I think I'm probably a little bit biased toward him, just because I love to watch him play. Um, he's small, he's fast, he, he's able to finish in spite of his diminutive size and all of those sorts of things, but I think... Um, I'm going to appeal to something I normally cringe at, and that's sort of the intangibles. I think he's there's something about his game um, that's contagious. There's something about the energy with which he plays on the offensive side of the ball uh, that I think sort of trickles down to everyone else who's on the floor with him at the same time. I think he ultimately is a driving force for their offense. And, and f to be totally frank, I think the Boston Celtics being good on defense is a given. I think the extent to which they're successful in the Eastern Conference is going to have a lot to do with uh, how good is their offense and, and how good does it uh, mature over the course of the season and, and going into the playoffs. And I think Isaiah Thomas is just a really huge part of that. I think he's a, uh, you know, you look at Horford as their biggest addition. To me, you know, he's not necessarily a go-to scorer. He's a guy who gets a lot of his buckets, I think, uh, out of the pick and pop. He's added the three-point corner shot to his game. But that ultimately comes from quality point guard play. We saw that in Atlanta with Teague and Schroeder. So to me, Isaiah Thomas is going to be really key to how good their offense is. And if he's good... He could easily. I think they could surpass the 48 wins uh, that I have him pegged for, uh, because I just think he's that pivotal to uh, what their offense does uh, and doesn't do over the course of the season. Yeah, I think that's very fair because you're right. He's such a big part of the offense, and uh, and this is a team that I think one of the main storylines this year is going to be the trades. I think this is everyone's hot take is going to be superstar X is going to the Celtics. Stephen A is going to say it. Everyone's going to have that player who is a who sends that like tweet that we read into a little too much, and we're going to send him to Boston. I think that's going to be at least the entire season. Uh, and the Celtics have the pieces to do it. Besides completely fleecing uh, the Nets a few years ago and getting all those picks, a lot of players they can package together and make a move, and for a lot of different salaries as well. Uh, ben, you talked about the fact that this is a very cap-friendly roster, and in terms of having a few expirings, you have contracts that can help you match 
another player's contract. Kelly Olynyk, Jonas Jarebko, Amir Johnson, each of them give you a little bit different cap amount on an expiring where you can make something happen and bring someone in. Uh, so I've got a question for the two of you. I have a few of those disgruntled superstars that are heading to Boston uh, at some point this season. Paul George, DeMarcus Cousins, Blake Griffin, Jimmy Butler. Which one fits best in Boston? Ben, I'll start with you. Gosh, that is a great question. Uh, the only one I don't like for Boston out of that group is DeMarcus Cousins. Um, and that that's mainly because I'm not a huge fan of DeMarcus Cousins just generally. I think in Boston you have um, really stellar locker room chemistry. I think you've got a bunch of guys who are committed to the idea, and I think this starts with the coach, uh, that the sum is more important than the individual pieces. So there's nobody there with an ego. There's nobody there who says, I need the ball, I want the ball, i got to get mine. Uh, and I think that produced a really incredible winning product that surprised a lot of people a year ago. Uh, DeMarcus Cousins, throw that into that locker room. And to me, that's just too volatile um, to make it work. So that's the only one I don't like. Any of those other trade possibilities, I mean, Paul George, my gosh, if Paul George goes to the Celtics, um, they have a real good shot at, at beating Cleveland in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, not as huge on Blake Griffin as other people are. I think he's very good. I just don't think he's great. Uh, so Paul George, man, if they can swing that, uh, they they could really be contenders. That would be something to see. See, that's really interesting to me, Ben, because I think DeMarcus Cousins, out of the names listed, is definitely the one I'd like to see the most in Boston. Um, the the When I see DeMarcus, I don't see necessarily like a selfish player or um, a kind of a me-first guy. I see a guy who is completely and utterly driven by winning and looks at the talent around him and says, the only way we are going to win is if I completely dominate everything and do everything in my power and control uh, and control all the outcomes and do everything that I can. And, uh, and since he's not at a talent level of someone like a LeBron, it doesn't work out for as well for him as he'd like. And that frustrates him because he's such a big competitor. I don't really see him as kind of a me first guy. I see him as like a huge competitor. And so I think if you if you found a package that wouldn't leave Boston like totally bereft of talent, um, I think that bringing Demarcus Cousins to the East, had, reuniting him with Isaiah Thomas, and they they had they had some good chemistry in Sacramento. Um, I think that's something that would definitely uh, that would make them an even stronger competitor to the Cavs in my mind. So um, what would you do with Al Horford in that scenario? You play so, him at the four. I think, yeah, I think you play Horford at the four. I know Atlanta Twitter is going to hate me for saying this, but I really <laughs> think Al is a natural four. And I know he, I know he played five, or he played four in college because he was next to Joe Kim Noah. And I know he's played five in Atlanta next to Paul Millsap. But because he's so versatile, I think that uh, I value uh, specialization out of my centers. And so when I look at Demarcus's cousins' game the specialization he offers um, on both sides of the glass and defensively is something I want out of my center. And Al's versatility uh, offensively out of the pick and pop or attacking on the pick and roll or uh, being kind of a guy who can contain the pick and roll on defense um, from the wing is why I would place him at the four and, and DeMarcus at the five. But I get a little bit scared about a Horford Cousins four or five on defense. But I think offensively, I think he makes some really often, uh, awesome points. I just worry a little bit about the defense. 
It's totally understandable. Yeah, Ben, I was going to say the same thing. And I think with Boogie, too, you want him at the five and not at the four because he has too much of a tendency to want to play outside the arc. You saw that a little bit last year in Sacramento. Uh, there were the talks with George Carl that he's working a bit on his three-point shot. You don't want that with DeMarcus Cousins. I think this is someone who has such a dominant post game when he wants to use it. And I think part of it is just the emotion at which he plays. Uh, that's something that's so special. Laz, I agree with you. I think you want him at the five. Yeah, that's very also, true. Shout out to all the old school DB beers who are going to recognize this phrase. Taller, fatter, Iverson. If you don't get it, that's okay. If you do, that, that was just for you. We could gush over Brad Stevens for the next 20 minutes. I don't even know if I want to do that. He's almost at the point of being overrated because everyone rates him so highly. So I guess the question I have, because each of us consider him to be such a great coach, is he a top three coach? Where do you rate him in terms of head coaches in the NBA? Laz, I'll start with you. Uh, I have him, I think... I have him at great, not necessarily elite. Elite is like the uh, Greg Popovich is elite. That's that's elite. Yeah. I think he's in the great category, kind of next to your Stan Van Gundy's and your Eric Spolstra's um, and your Rick Carlisle's. Um, that's where I just slightly under the elite coaches, but there's no there's no shame in being a top seven coach in the league instead of a top three coach, you know? Yeah, that's, that's where I'm at with Brad Stevens. That's fair. And that's how I feel about Brad Stevens. That's why I feel he may be overrated is there's nothing wrong with him being one of the better coaches in the league. Uh, ben, where do you have him rated? So, Laz, I really like the way you put that. To me, there's Greg Popovich, and he's his own category, and then there's everybody else. And to me, um, Stevens is right up there in the top three of five. And, you know, if I was talking to someone who said he's top three, I wouldn't argue if someone was saying, oh, no, he's, he's fifth, not third, I wouldn't argue either. He, he's right there in that top three to five mix, and I think he's proven that in Boston. I think we all have this team as a playoff team, so let's just get down to brass numbers here. Let's get down to brass tags. How many wins for the Boston Celtics? And if you have an idea of seeds, I'm going to throw mine out. Go ahead and throw out what seed you think the Celtics are, but start with how many wins, Ben. Yeah, so unless Jalen Brown is just absolutely amazing, I have them right around 48 wins which should put them, you know, fighting contention with the third or the fourth seed. Okay, last how many? I have them at 54 wins, but also as the number three seed. Interesting. Okay, I have them as 53 wins uh, and the number two seed. I like them a little bit more than the team we're about to talk about. And it seems that you two like the Toronto Raptors as the number one team and the team to win the Atlantic Division. There are some questions with Boston, Ben, just to... Just to kind of go back to it for a second, I, I think there are enough questions that you're right. 48 wins might seem like a bad season, but it's still a great year for Boston as they kind of figure out how they're going to contend with the Cavaliers. Uh, but I, I just believe in Brad Stevens. I think defensively they're going to be fantastic this year. So I have them as the number two seed winning the Atlantic Division with 53 wins. I was just going to say that they won 48 games last year. And so to say they'll win the same amount of games they did last year with the addition of Al Horford is just, that didn't make enough sense to me, which is why I added a couple more wins to their, their win total. Just sprinkled in a few Horford wins. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the team that you guys have winning the Atlantic Division, the Toronto Raptors, uh, the number one team on our Atlantic Division preview, and the last team we'll talk about for this podcast episode. The best case and worst case scenarios for this season. Laz, go ahead and start us off. Yeah, so the best case scenario is that they repeat last year and are just a completely uh, dominant offensive team. Um, that backcourt can't be stopped. Uh, no one gets hurt, and they outscore their opponents and play really well at home. 
the worst case scenario is actually kind of more interesting. The worst case scenario is that uh, with with the loss of Bismack Biombo, that uh, they become a much worse defensive team, especially off the bench. Um, and the, uh, you run into a point where if you don't have Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan on the floor, you can't defend or score. Okay, if Yaka Pertle ends up as kind of their backup center behind uh, Jonas Valanciunas, ends up playing a lot, I don't think that guy's ready to defend it at an NBA level. And so uh, the worst case scenario kind of involves him playing, you know, that backup center role 15 to 20 minutes a night, giving up a ton of buckets on, on the inside. Ben, what about for you, your best and worst case seasons for the Raptors? Yeah, I think I almost completely agree. Very dynamic uh, backcourt with one of the best point guards, probably in the NBA, but definitely in the Eastern Conference. And then they're deep. I think Sullinger was a fantastic addition to their front court. He can play both positions depending on, on lineups. And then if uh, Damari Kara is, is healthy, you know, they have pretty good depth as a small forward uh, position as well. So I think they really have a 9-10 to 10 deep rotation, a really dominant center when he's healthy, and an excellent point guard. Uh, so to me, they've really kind of held serve in spite of the fact that they've probably lost a little bit on the defensive side of the ball. And Ben, you and I had uh, the same most important player. We had Kyle Lowry. Uh, and I think some of those worries that you might have probably come back to Kyle Lowry and how he plays this season. Um, what are your expectations for him going into this year? I think Kyle Lowry is probably the most underappreciated point guard in the NBA. I don't know necessarily why that's the case, but year in and year out, he just puts up fantastic numbers, yeah. and he does so for, for teams that are very, very good. Um, I think probably some of it has to do with the fact that um, they've never really put it together in the playoffs. And for better or worse, that's kind of where your legacy um, you know, it, it comes to fruition or it doesn't. And so far for Kyle, it, it hasn't, unfortunately. But to me, in terms of just a complete point guard, he's one of the best in the NBA. He's a good shooter. He's a good finisher. And then, of course, he's a fantastic uh, orchestrator in terms of getting the five-man offense uh, moving and functioning well. So to me, fantastic point guard uh, in all facets of the game. Not to say he was underwhelming in the Olympics, but I expected more just with how he plays in Toronto. Uh, but I think a lot of it has to do with the chemistry he has as a point guard for that team specifically. Uh, he's just been fantastic for them. Uh, th- this is a, a big year for him, um, seeing as they've kind of added to the depth. I can see him having another all-star caliber year. So let's talk a little bit more about some of those front court players, because those are the guys we have marked as most intriguing. Uh, and also your most important player, Laz, Jonas Valanciunas. Talk a little bit yeah. about his game. And then, Ben, I want you to get into his value with the team and then also that trade you mentioned for Jonas. So for me, Jonas is the most important player for the Raptors because uh, the expansion of his game um, usage-wise, offensively, is going to be a big step for them. Um, if he can, if he can stay as efficient as he is right now, um, and help lighten some of the offensive load on Demar Derozan and Kyle Lowry, I think that the Raptors would be a better team overall. Um, especially Derozan. I don't think Derozan will play as well as he did last year, uh, this year, and so kind of stealing possessions from him, um, stealing efficiency from him. Um, for for a more efficient player would be a, a huge step for them. And if he's going to start and if he's going to continue to play uh, without the safety net of Bismack Biombo kind of late in games, he has to be better defensively. 
he has to be more attentive in pick and roll coverage. Um, he has to block more shots. He has to uh, pay attention on the uh, on the defensive glass. Yeah, so I think Jonas, when he's healthy, he is a load uh, in the low post. I, I think he's sort of the 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 type of big man that's going out of style a little bit in the NBA because he's he's very effective in the low post, and he doesn't try to be anything other than that. Laz, I think you bring up good points in terms of. You know, is he really committed defensively? Is he skilled enough to be a full-time center, or, or, or is that a weakness in his game that he's not able to overcome? Uh, but to me, if he's healthy and if he's out of foul trouble, as I talked about earlier, um, I think he is so good offensively that he creates problems for whomever you're matched up against. Because I think specifically about watching the Pistons play the Raptors, Andre Drummond, in my opinion, is a pretty good post defender in terms of his one-on-one defense. He's not great as a help defender, but he's pretty good in terms of the one-on-one post defense. And Jonas has, at times, just completely had his way with Andre Drummond. Uh, So I think if he stays healthy, if he stays out of foul trouble, I think he's a big part of why Toronto can be very effective offensively, uh, like Glass was saying. Yeah, they've lost something defensively, but they could be a top five to seven offense in terms of their efficiency, uh, offensive efficiency for 100 possessions, if they're able to t- uh, tap into Jonas's strengths. And then in terms of the trade, uh, while I was researching a little bit for this podcast, there's some rumors floating around about uh, DeMarcus Cousins, as we've already talked about. I'm not as high on him as other people are. Um, but Jonas for Cousins is one of those rumors that's floating around. Uh, it might make sense for both sides, depending on uh, you know what you think each team uh, is missing and what each team would be gaining by adding the other player. Um, so that, to me, could be a blockbuster trade because you're talking about two of the top five big men uh, in the NBA at their respective positions. Is Jonas a top five NBA big man? I, I don't want to quibble over that, but that kind Offensively, of Offensively, yes. Defensively, yeah. I grant you that he is not, and that takes yeah. him. Away. And that's kind of where I would be coming at from the angle of that trade. Um, no, I grant that, that to you. You're right. That You're would absolutely be, right. That would be that would be a great trade for Toronto. I think that. Um, some of the issues you rose previously with Demarcus, uh, like his leadership ability and his like, I think would be helped a lot by trading him to Toronto because uh, that's something that Kyle Lowry also dealt with early in his career. And I think that having kind of that floor general kind of guy next to Demarcus to calm him down, to uh, tell another guy who cares about winning and losing just as much as he does, um, a guy that knows when to get him shots. <laughs> maybe even yeah. uh, it's uh, would be something that'd be supremely beneficial for him. And in return, Sacramento would get Giannis Valanciunas, who is a guy that we're not sure can be a full-time center uh, on both sides of the court in the NBA. So like if I'm Toronto, I'd, I'd do that trade immediately. I don't know if I do it if I'm Sacramento though. Well, I think you've raised an interesting point too around the leadership issues. Uh, one thing that I watched a lot of this summer, and I, I hope everyone else did too, was the Olympic basketball. Whenever I was on, I was watching it. And, I do think you made a good point, and it's a similar point to what I've made around Andre Drummond. Sometimes players um, are frustrated because they're losing, and that gets interpreted as, I'm frustrated because it's all about me. And I don't know that I've watched DeMarcus enough to really know the difference, but I I trust that you have, Laz, and I think that's a really good point. And and I think what you could maybe point to in favor of DeMarcus Cousins is the Olympic basketball roster and his entire demeanor and his approach to the Olympics. And if you're Toronto, you've got 
Lowry's experience in the Olympics with Cousins as sort of a little bit of insider information that might be really useful if you're contemplating a trade like that. So not to take all of our time talking about Toronto, but I just think those are really good points, Laz, and I just want to highlight that. I think if there was a, a move that gets to Marcus Cousins to Toronto, and I'm sure they're a team that's interested, Jonas is probably part of that package. Laz, some of the things you're talking about are probably reason enough that that package would have to be a little more than Jonas. Uh, I'm sure that would have to involve some draft picks and maybe some other players uh, if Sacramento is going to go through with it. And I'm sure they're expecting a haul uh, if they're going to get rid of DeMarcus in a trade. Uh, I'm interested to see what it will take. Part of what we touched on with Jonas was not being able to be a full-time center. Laz, you talked about that. Losing Bismack Biombo, definitely a huge loss on the defensive end. Talk about your most intriguing player, Laz, and the role he has to fill um, with Bismack no longer in Toronto. So my most intriguing player is uh, Bebe Nogueira, who is, uh, I think, I think uh, at the start of the season, you'll see him uh, at the backup center spot over the rookie, uh, Jakob Pertl. But um, for me, it's really a question of if he's ready or if anyone really is ready to fill that backup center spot on the roster. Um, you look at a guy like Nogueira and you kind of hope he emulates uh, Clint Capella, who was another younger, uh, maybe not, well-developed uh, big man for Houston, but a guy who came in, knew his role immediately, uh, rebounded and blocked shots to the best of his ability, and was a very uh, a very big contributor to Houston, and so much so that they, they feel confident in you know, letting him start uh, right away this season. Um, I think Bebe can kind of emulate that, um, not to the point where he'll start over Jonas, obviously, but uh, if he comes in, and has learned the lessons of uh, Bismack Biampo, has learned the lessons of where to be defensively, of shot blocking and, and rebounding and kind of knowing what his role is on the basketball court. I think that's something that definitely makes the Toronto Raptors a better team. On the, on the flip side, if he, ha- if he doesn't really know that yet, if he's not quite ready defensively or if he's not strong enough to get bullied out of the way on post possessions or he's not uh, strong enough to be... Uh, a good enough boxer out well enough to to score rebounds on both sides of the glass, then uh, Toronto's really in trouble because we're, we're still not sure about Jonas. Right, and we're not sure about, to your point, Jakob Pertl as well. Uh, I love yeah. the comparison to Clint Compella because that was a player that we didn't really know what type of production he could give Houston. Houston kind of gave him that backup spot, and he blossomed. And one of the guys that could step up is my most intriguing player, Jared Sullinger. He probably plays a bit more at the four. I like him playing that role Patrick Patterson has played for Toronto. Uh, But if there are some issues backing up Jonas and taking some of those minutes at the five, I think Sullinger could do it, even though he is getting more comfortable outside the arc. It's interesting, though, that you know if if it's not Baby Noguera, if Pearl's not ready, that is a position of need. For Toronto, and I'm wondering how much that could cost them losing Bismack Biombo. He was so good for them in the playoffs. Uh, that's for me, I think, a huge loss for this team, and definitely puts pressure on the rest of those big men to step up. Let's talk a little bit about Dwayne Casey uh, before we get into this team's playoff odds and, and odds at the Eastern Conference Finals. What do you think of Dwayne Casey as a coach, and what did he show you last season, and what do you expect this season? Last, we'll start with you. So I think Dwayne Casey is not. He's a good coach. He's not one of the better coaches. Um, you saw him frequently get outcoached in the playoffs, even by teams that they ended up being better than, like Vogel. Vogel outcoached him pretty hard in that series. Um, but that said, I think what he is good at, which is kind of 
building a locker room and instilling uh, a good defensive principles in his players uh, down the line. I think those are things that the Raptors could use. And so I think uh, though he, he's not like a great coach or an elite coach, I think he's a, a fine coach for this team. Yeah, Ben, what are your thoughts on Dwayne Casey? Yeah, I read him as average. You know, I don't have anything bad to say about him. Um, the flip side, I don't have anything particularly noteworthy uh, that I've seen him accomplish as a coach. I think, Laz, your, your comments about the playoffs, I think, are spot on. Uh, so to me, he's kind of middle of the road. Nothing bad to say, nothing great to say either. It will be interesting, though, what this team's expectations are. And that kind of leads into my top storyline. Is it Eastern Conference Finals or bust for this team? Uh, and at what point does it cost Dwayne Casey his job? I know two seasons ago in the playoffs, uh, before they had won a playoff series, there was some talk that he may be fired following the playoffs. So I know that there must be some expectation, some bar that's set for Toronto. So that's kind of my storyline. What is that bar? What are their expectations for this season? And if they don't meet it, what, what does it mean for the team going forward? You know, personally, uh, I'm curious to see if they are as committed to DeMar DeRozan as they have said they are publicly. I think DeMar is a guy who's been sort of up and down uh, in terms of his public perception, in terms of production on the court. I think last year, maybe he sort of came into his own. That's interesting, Ben, because my top storyline for the year was kind of, is that the real DeRozan? We know that was his contract year. Um, we know now that he's gotten paid. And previously, you know, he's been an inefficient law, a shooter of long twos, which isn't really, that's not something that you want uh, in today's NBA. He's not a particularly good on-ball defender. I think he, he works well within the team concepts that Casey's installed, but um, he's not, he's not, He's thought of maybe as like a, as a top five shooting guard, and I think he's more of a shooting guard on a top five team rather than a, a top five shooting guard. And so whether or not we see him improve upon his game or like, you know, pay, pay more, I don't want to say pay more attention, but we, whether we see him kind of focus more uh, defensively on, on being a better uh, on-ball defender, I think that's something that will be really important for the Raptors uh, this year. What happens when the Toronto Raptors uh, start be, stop being nice and start getting real with the Wanderers? Well, you know, my, my first question was, I, I sort of meant it tongue-in-cheek, but I also sort of mean it seriously. Are the Raptors happy being a 50-win team? And they very well might be. So that, I think, is the question. Do they want to try to shuffle the deck and make a big move to compete with Cleveland? Or are they cool just, you know, packing out the stands, making the playoffs, and, and everything with, that comes with that? And, you know, I just don't know. I don't know enough about them to say if that's where they're content or if they really want to try to make a, a run for the Eastern Conference Finals and compete with Cleveland. Well, Laz, nice shout-out to uh, the real world there. And, and very nice job on your very first <laughs> podcast uh, with, with the Detroit Bad Boys. So let's finish strong and give me how many wins for the Raptors. I said they won 56 games, which is just as many as they won last year. Um, I don't think they get any better. I don't think they get any worse. I think they're still going to be really a really good home court team. And uh, with the 56 wins, that means I still have them as the number two seed in the Eastern Conference. All right, number two seed in the East with 56 wins. Ben, what do you have them as? I have them at 52. I think they fall off a little bit. Still very good, not quite great, un unless they uh, shuffle the roster up and, and make a big trade. Yeah, I can see them taking a bit of a step back. Uh, some of the concerns that you, both of you kind of raised with DeMar DeRozan, I definitely have. I have them definitely as a playoff team 
winning 50 games and the number three seed uh, in the Eastern Conference for this year. So I have them actually behind the Boston Celtics. And I know you both like them winning the Atlantic Division. Uh, so I have three playoff teams coming out of the Atlantic. Each one of you have two. I have some just quick fire questions here about these top two teams. Laz, you said uh, in terms of just making the playoffs that both Boston and Toronto easily make the playoffs. If one of those teams were to miss the playoffs, which one do you think it is for this season? Ooh, that's a good question, Jordan. That's a really good question. I think Thank you. it would, despite my, my uh, bullishness on the Raptors, I think it would have to be them simply because I can see I can see a scenario in which it falls apart for them more clearly than I can for uh, for Boston. And maybe that's because of the coaching. Uh, maybe that's uh, Lowry uh, deteriorating at a rate that we don't expect. Maybe that's some of the issues that Ben and I have raised about the, the center position. Um, maybe that's some of the issues Ben and I have raised about uh, DeMar DeRozan's play. Um, they're, they're not particularly deep either. But, uh, yeah, I can definitely see if, if one of those two teams had to miss the playoffs, I think it would be the Raptors. Ben, which of these two teams, the Celtics and the Raptors, is a better matchup for the Pistons in the playoffs? That's a different question than you asked Laz. <laughs> it's a very different question. <laughs> I, was, I was about to piggyback on Laz and say nope. Raptors, but for different reasons. I think probably the Celtics, to be perfectly honest with you, because I don't know how the Celtics deal with Andre Drummond. And I don't think they are particularly fantastic. Um, even though they're very good defensively, I think their weak spot is probably point guard. I think they probably try to mitigate that by putting Bradley uh, on Reggie Jackson and hoping KCP doesn't go off. Um, but I would rather play Boston than a healthy Toronto. And that didn't really work last year, if I recall correctly. I think KCP had his he had a, he had his thirty one point game against Boston when they tried that strategy and they tried to hide. Uh, Isaiah on him and it didn't work so who knows what that would look like in a seven game series I just I don't know how Boston deals with Andre Drummond I don't yeah I don't know how you keep him off the glass on either side of the ball but particularly offensively I think he would just I I think he would dominate and put up some of his 2020 games because I you know I like Horford but I don't think he can box out Andre Drummond in a seven game series consistently I totally agree with you Ben I'm, I'm ending it right there so that's five teams down. We have 10 to go. The Atlantic Division done in the books. We have the Southeast coming next week, the Central the week after. Last, thank you so much for your contribution. We will definitely have you on again. Yeah, thank you. Always great to talk basketball, and we've got a lot more basketball talk coming. So thanks, as always, for listening to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast.